When I was in high school, I had a job at the local grocery store, and I was really excited when I got promoted. Um, I started out as the bagger, the collector of carts, and I got promoted to cashier. Now, it was a big deal back then. This is pre-barcode days, guys. I mean, you actually had to know something about these products and punch it in, and I loved that job. One of the things I didn't realize, though, is that the checkers, the cashiers, at the end of the night would have to face the shelves. That's kind of technical lingo here. Facing the shelves means you have to bring all the products forward, at least two deep. And if there's a couple rows of it, all the rows at least two deep, so that when someone walks in the store at 8 o'clock in the morning, they go, wow, this place looks stocked full of stuff. So there I am, facing the shelves, and I'm working the mustard section. Now, kids, another thing you need to know is back then, mustard didn't come in plastic containers. Mustard only came in little glass jars. Remember those Heinz glass jars? Well, that's where I'm at. I'm in the Heinz jar section there with the mustard, and they're about four wide, and they're about three high, and I've got to bring it all forward. Well, guess what happens? Mustard jars start falling. I grab the first one, I catch the second, but there's more than two. I mean, they're just cascading down, and I'm catching them in my arms, and some of them are hitting on the others, and they're breaking open, and mustard is everywhere. The ketchup section below the mustard is now all yellow. My white shirt is all yellow, and to give you a sense of the times, my baby blue cords. (laughs) That's right, my baby blue cords. Some of you had those. Those were shot. I mean, I never put those on again. You just couldn't get the stain out. It was, it was definitely cleanup in aisle four time. That was all over. Now, I tell you that story because when we come to the section of poetry, the heart of the Old Testament, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, when you come to those five books, it tells us how to live a life in a God-honoring way in the midst of a world where sin is splashing up and staining us all around us, and where our lives have been stained and affected by sin, just like that outfit that I was wearing that fateful night as I was facing the mustard section. And so we come to this section of Scripture, and you remember back when we started this series, cover to cover, going from Genesis to Revelation and celebrating Christ throughout it all. Remember we looked at how the Old Testament unfolds. You'll see it up on the slide. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, and there's really three major sections, 17 in the front, 17 in the back, the history and the law up front, the major and minor prophets in the back, and then right there in the middle, these five books of poetry, and they're very unique. The focus here is much more personal than it is national. And when you think about this section of Scripture, I want you to think that the key word here is the word wisdom. Now, I just ask yourself, am I a wise person? Would the decisions that I made this week reflect on me being that kind of a person, a wise person? Sometimes when we hear the word wisdom or wise, we we think of a person who's smart. That's really not how the Bible thinks about this category. Sometimes we think about a person who's really old. They must be wise. They've lived a long time. That's not how the Bible thinks about it. Actually, wisdom is the skill for living life in a God-honoring way. That's what wisdom is. It's the skill for living life in a God-honoring way. It's way more than just knowledge. It's knowledge that's applied to life. It works out in real shoe leather every day in all the stuff that we do throughout a day. Wisdom 
is then not something that we just get because we've lived a long time. It's something that we get from God. It's a gift from God. And it's also something that the Bible says we ought to pursue. So in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 4, Solomon is telling his sons, sons, go after it like you would silver. You go after it and dig for it like you would a hidden treasure. Pursue it with all that you have. It is so valuable and precious. The stuff called wisdom. So that's the key word. But there's also a key phrase. Remember the key phrase last week for the book of Judges? Everyone did that which is right in their what? Own eyes. That was not a good epitaph for that 350-year period of history. But this is a good banner that falls over these five books. And it's the phrase, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. We saw it up on the first slide as we walked in this room this morning from Proverbs, I think it was chapter 9, verse 10. How the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or in Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And when you hear that phrase, the first time you hear it, you go, well, is that, does that say that I'm supposed to be afraid of God? Is that what it's saying? Is that the starting point here? Being afraid of God? Well, I think the answer is no and yes. It's, it's a little of that, but that's not it at all, if you think that's all it is. Really, the fear of the Lord is seeing God for who he is. In light of what we see and know about God, it's responding accordingly with reverence, affection, humility, and obedience. So the fear of the Lord is seeing God for who he is and responding accordingly with reverence, affection, humility, and obedience. Now, we say that because... The scriptures talk a lot about this phrase, the fear of the Lord, and you start to chase it through the scriptures and you realize these are descriptives of this phrase. So, for example, in Revelation 14, 7, we understand someone who fears God worships him. So we meet the angel who cries out in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Worship God. When we see God for who he is, we live accordingly by worshiping him. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 talks about the importance of reverence, how we approach God. I mean, we'll, we'll understand if we've got the right picture of God by this whole response. Do we have reverent awe for God? Or is he, as sometimes it's kind of flippantly said, is he just the big man upstairs? I guarantee you, if that's the way that you refer to God, you probably haven't seen God for who he is. Listen to what Ecclesiastes says. Solomon writing again here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your your steps when you come into this place to worship. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Here's why. God is in heaven, and you're on earth. You're not. So let your words be few. The person who fears God worships God. They're in awe of God. What they see is beautiful beautiful in their own eyes, and they adore that and worship that, our great God. The person who fears God, though, is also one who's got a heart of affection 
we don't just know things about God that say, wow, that's really great stuff. But we feel deeply about God. We love him with all of our hearts. And so Deuteronomy 10, 12 says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. What you see and what you've received from this God makes you respond with love. You've got affection, not just knowledge. There's also humility, though. What's humility? Humility is seeing myself as God sees me. And the best place for me to understand how God sees me is to keep walking over and placing myself beneath the cross. Because it's at the cross where I know two things about myself. First of all, I know that I'm a sinner who deserves God's judgment. And second, I know that I'm a sinner who's received God's forgiveness, his mercy, his grace through his son who died in my place. So I see myself as God sees me. That's humility. And so when you understand who God is, it's just like verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 5. I know I'm not God. I'm not in heaven. Here I am. I'm a mortal. I'm finite. I'm fallen. I'm a sinner. I'm messed up. There's humility as I stand before God. And then there's obedience. Fearing the Lord is synonymous with obeying God. And so we saw it already in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, there it is, to walk in all his ways. Obedience. And so what this phrase does in the Old Testament is what the words believe and faith do in the New Testament. So to fear the Lord really is to know God, to believe in him, to trust him with all of your heart, to worship him. It's synonymous with the New Testament words of faith and trust and belief. So what these books do then is they help us know in a very practical way because that's what they are. They're very practical. Though they may be high poetry, they're very practical. They say, okay, you love God with all of your heart? You know that's what the law is all about. You know the law is all about not only loving God, but your neighbor as yourself. Well, this is what it looks like in the midst of a fallen world where mustard's splashing up all around us and our hearts are stained with sin. This is what it looks like to love God. And so these five books are explaining how the law applies to everyday life. In the same way, in the New Testament, the epistles will explain how the gospel makes sense and is applied in everyday life, those letters to the churches. Now, when we get here to these five books, as we already said, they're very personal. It's not a national history. It's personal stories. And it's very intimate. And so we know the story of Job. And it's all about this man's life. The beginning is so great. He's a righteous man. He's got a wonderful family. He's got riches. He's been blessed by God. But then we see what happens. It's one tragic event after another. He loses all of his possessions. He loses all of his children. All of his grandchildren died of these horrific, what we might call natural disasters. And we see him 
with his head shaved and his garments torn, with ashes on his head, weeping and wailing and mourning and scraping the boils that now affect his body with the broken pieces of pottery. We hear him crying out to God. We hear him cursing the day that he was born. We hear him debating his friends who are trying to comfort him and are no comfort at all to him. It's very personal. We turn the pages and we get to the Psalms. And and here we hear the songs. The songs of God's people who meet God in all kinds of places. Sometimes they're just in the pits, like Psalm 40 that we sang earlier today. Just in the mire, in the muck, in the mud, in the cesspool, in that quicksand, and going down fast, crying out to God, save me, deliver me. Sometimes we meet the psalmist and he's going, God, where are you? My prayers aren't getting through the ceiling. God, you have not listened to me. You seemingly don't care about me. God, why are the wicked prospering? It just doesn't seem like it makes any sense for me to pursue you in righteousness when those guys who aren't are doing better than me. And we hear him singing the songs, the songs of praise. God, you did hear my cry. You took me out of that pit and you put my feet on a rock on a solid place. God, you forgave my sins. You've been merciful to me. I praise you. I sing a new song to you. The the Psalms give voice to all that we feel and go through in life. I mean, there's a lot of us in this room, and I can tell you this, we're not all in the same place. Some of us are, we're, we're kind of in a high. It's been a great week. Life's good right now. Some of us is, man, it's really bad. It's really hard right now. I guarantee you this, that there isn't a feeling you have, there isn't a place where you're at right now today where you can't go to the Psalms and go, nobody there knows what I'm going through. You'll go, I can't believe it. That's just how I feel. That's just what I'm going through. And I don't even know how to express it, but they're expressing it for me. It's beautiful how they give voice to the things that we're wrestling with. Very personal. We go to the book of Proverbs. Those first nine chapters have to do with with the king or the father giving his sons godly advice. Very likely Solomon. We go in Ecclesiastes, and it's like we got someone's diary, his final memoirs. And here we're reading about this man, the wisest, richest man in the world at that time, who's chasing down the meaning of life. He's looking for happiness and the real root of happiness. Where is it? And we read at the end of his life how he, he's got all kinds of regrets as he's been chasing it all. And he says, it's all been meaningless. It's all been vanity. It's all been a vapor. He says, but here's what really matters. My relationship with God, fearing him, obeying his commands. Song of Solomon. Talk about intimate, personal. It, it'd be kind of like you're cleaning out your parents' attic. And, and all of a sudden you start get into a box and there's a lot of letters and there's some love letters in there you start reading these letters and you're going i can't believe this this is my whoa i can't believe this is my mom and my dad and it's like i don't think i should be reading this and and that's how it is as you read song of solomon you you're reading these love poems that these lovers are sharing with each other in fact the church over the years was so troubled with the graphic um intimate explicit kind of sexual nature of these, they, they right away say, whoa, 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 this is an allegory. This is not about real life and real people and real love. It's just an allegory. But it's not. 
It really is a celebration of God's gift of sex within marriage. Very personal. And when you think about the personal nature of these five books, it reminds us of the garden. God having a personal, intimate relationship with Adam and Eve. Hey, that's why we were created. God created us because he loves us and he wants us to know him and have a relationship with him. Remember, at the heart of the covenant that God made, those promises to Abraham is, Abraham, I want to be your God. And and I don't want to just be your God off in a distance, but I want to be your God up close and personal. I want you to know me. I want you to be my people. It's been a relationship. And this is a good reminder as we come to this very personal section of the Old Testament that God from the very beginning has always desired a relationship. And this is what this relationship looks like. And it's a good reminder that God's not a category in my life where I go, God, I'm going to make a deal with you because I want to be a religious person and I want to be good. And I think there's some value in that. But here's what I've got for you. What, I, what I've got for you is uh, Sunday mornings. I've got like 10.45, maybe till 12. And if the guy doesn't go too long, maybe I can be out of here by 12 and get to the Packers game. But I'll give you that hour and 15, okay, God? It's not like that. God says, I I want all of your life. And And these five books remind us that, hey, our relationship with God just goes into all of life. And so it meets us in the kitchen and it travels all the way to the bedroom. It walks out with us as we leave the house and it has to do with how we relate to our neighbors. It goes to school with us and it walks into our workplaces and talks about how we deal with those who are over us and those who are under us. It it talks about how we deal with the poor and the oppressed in our culture. It deals with every part of my body, what I listen to, what I watch, what I say, what my hands do, where my feet lead me. It talks about all of that. Every relationship that I have with my parents, with my children, with my spouse, with those I work with. You see, it's in all of life. And that's a good thing to remember that these five books teach us. The other thing these five books do is they help us. Because the world changed in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we realized that there wasn't just God speaking. There actually was, there was an alternative voice. It was the serpent's voice. It was Satan's voice, whom Scripture calls the father of all lies. And he, he offers another way, another word to follow, another message, other promises. And what these five books do is they just say, we're going after that stuff. We're taking it down. It's hand-to-hand combat in the streets, wisdom taking on wicked counsel. The lies, the false promises, it points out what truly are the consequences of those actions in that direction. So, for example... In Proverbs chapter 5, it's a whole passage about the folly, the foolishness of adultery, of sex outside of marriage. And what it does is says, look, you think her path is a path that leads to pleasure. You're wrong. You go through her doors, and it's a path that leads to hell, to destruction. It's going to destroy you. Oh, the taste may be sweet, Proverbs says, but in the end, it is a bitter pill. It is bitter poison that will ruin your life and those that you love. It just takes it on in hand-to-hand combat. You see that right from the get-go in Psalm. In the first Psalm, Psalm 1, verse 1, what does it say? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. 
So it's taking punches right away out of the gate. Go back to the book of Job. Job's taken on wicked counsel. You say, how so? Chapter 3 through chapter 37 gives us 34 chapters of dialogue that records the wicked counsel of Job's well-intentioned friends who are basically saying, Job, listen, the reason you're suffering, friend, is you've sinned big time. So fess up, get right with God, get on with your life, you'll do us all a favor. Well, they never read chapter 1. They, they weren't in heaven when God said to Satan, Hey, Satan, have you seen my man Job? There's none like him. He's the most righteous man on the face of this earth. I, they must have missed that. Wicked counsel that Job's taking on. You know, that wicked counsel is stuff that we hear today. There, there are a lot of people that don't have an adequate, full theology of suffering. In their construct, suffering is always from the enemy. It's always evil. They don't understand that it is possible for a righteous man like Job to suffer. They don't understand that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, suffered greatly. And I'll tell you, and even more, if if there's such a word, wickeder counsel, is the person who says to you, if you're struggling with cancer, or like Lori's dad, who died of Lou Gehrig's disease, You know, if you just had faith, you'd be healed. The reason you're still sick is because your faith is deficient. Friends, that's wicked counsel. And the book of Job comes to us in the midst of our suffering, and it helps us to know how do you persevere in faith when your whole world has been torn apart and you've got friends around you that are saying the wrong thing. They're giving you wicked counsel that's not helping. But the book of Job is a little bit more than just that, too. The book of Job is about, well, it's it's about human suffering. The book of Job, though, is also about God's compassion and his mercy. You go to James chapter 5. Let's pull that slide up. Verse 11. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. The book of Job is pointing out not just the ravages in this man's life as it's been torn apart by human suffering and all his loss, but it's a story about God. And what we know about God from the pages of Job is he's compassionate. He's full of mercy. So Job's teaching us how to persevere in faith. And, and the duking out is going on in Psalms and Proverbs. It's, it's on the street level, the fight is, going after it. In Ecclesiastes, it's kind of like the fight goes to the halls of philosophy. Takes on wicked counsel there. Song of Solomon takes on the sensualist. He says, just, man, live and let live. Just go for it. Anything you want, whatever will make you happy, anytime with anyone, any place, go for it. Well, it takes it on. And so we read these books like Job when we're going through suffering. When we're wrestling with a situation that seems totally out of control, read Job to be reminded that what was totally out of control from Job's perspective was actually in God's hands. He was in control, that whole thing. Read Job when you've got a friend who's just lost a loved one or gone through a horrific tragedy. How do I do it? How do I not do it? Read the Psalms. When you find yourself 
wherever you find yourself today, on a high or down in the valley, you, you, you allow the, the Psalms to just meet your soul, give voice to what you're feeling right now. And as one of my friends put it, let the Psalms make your feel, feelings into allies of your faith instead of the enemies to your faith. For a lot of us, the fight of faith is this. I know God's word says he's good, he's loving, he's all-powerful, he sees me, he knows me, he cares for me. Yet my feelings right now say, God, I don't think you see me. I don't feel like you love me. I feel like you've forgotten about me. And now I have a choice. Where am I going to live my life? Is it going to be according to what I feel right now or according to what I've always believed on the basis of God's word, his revelation? And the psalmist, what's so beautiful about the psalmist is when they meet us in those pits of despair, they never just end there and you go, well, what did you do? What happened? We know what happened. Because they always resolve, even though they talk about the pits and where they are, they always resolve in praise to God. And that's how the psalms make allies out of our feelings to our faith. So the psalms are going to be really helpful as you worship God. So we just use Psalm 40 in, in our song, in our praise today. Psalm 46 in that piece we sang about the river, a river in the middle of the city of God. That's, that's going right back to Psalm 46. You use the Psalms to fuel your praise. You use the Psalms to help you pray. You want to grow in spiritual togetherness with your spouse? Well, a good thing to do is to pray the word of God through with each other. You want to do that? It's fa- you can do that. So here, take for example Psalm 1, the first three verses. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And then you just allow that to just fuel your prayer. So here's how I prayed this week. Lord, I want, I need your blessing. Help me to turn away from wicked counsel. Lord, show me where I'm being deceived. Help our kids to know what's true, what's not. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Lord, help me to think about your word more all the time. Help me to delight in your word. Lord, help me to delight in it like I do my favorite meal. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Lord, plant me, grow me, make me fruitful, prosper me. Lord, don't let there be one withering leaf in my life. That's what the Psalms can do. It's so helpful of guiding our prayers. And obviously, it's not just the Psalms. There's these great Pauline prayers in Ephesians and Colossians that we ought to be praying back to. But the Psalms are a great place to go for our prayer life. They also help us. Remember the cow? Remember the tea bag? They're also great for meditation. Remember that cow? When we see the cow in the field, we're supposed to remember, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be chewing my gut. I'm supposed to be chewing on the word of God. And like that cow, just chewing on it, mulling over it, bringing it up again. I know it's a little disgusting, but bringing it up again to chew on it some more uh, just throughout the day because what that's doing for the cow is it's nourishing it. It's giving it life. And what it does for us is the same thing. It's making us strong. This word, Moses says, is not an idle word. It is my life. It's your life. What is that tea? 
That tea bag is the Word of God that's now infusing into the cup of my mind and my heart. And as I allow it to just seep into my mind and heart, it starts to change who I am. That cup is transformed from warm, hot, clear liquid that's tasteless into something that's bold and aromatic and flavorful. It's totally different. The Psalms will do that. The Proverbs, how to use the Proverbs? Well, think about one of Dave vitamins. Something you ought to take every day. Something you ought to read every day. And you know what's cool about the book of Proverbs is how many chapters are there? Who knows? 31. That pretty much covers the average month, right? 31. So Billy Graham's habit is every day he reads the prob for that day. So today's October 22nd. He read Proverbs 22. So it, it's practical wisdom that you and I need as long as we're breathing. We ought to go read it. It's, it's vitamins. It's good for us. Your young parent, this is the book that tells you what you ought to be teaching your children. It gives you all the curriculum. It's right there. All the subjects you need to cover. All that is important. I had a friend who would do this with his boys. He'd get him up. He'd cook him breakfast. And he'd open up the Bible. They wouldn't go through a chapter, but three or four Proverbs. He'd walk through it with his boys. They were young boys. And he'd drive them off to school just talking about the Proverbs. Really good. I had another friend who was so convinced of the importance of this passage of Scripture for his grandchildren that he bribed them. And he unashamedly bribed them. He said to his grandkids, if you can memorize Proverbs chapter 3, Grandpa will pay you $100. Well, guess what? His grandkids all memorized Proverbs chapter 3. And Wendell was convinced that that was the best investment that he could ever make with $100. Because he was convinced that if his grandkids memorized it and then internalized it and lived that out, that would be so helpful for them for all their lives. The book of Proverbs. You might use the book of Ecclesiastes if you find yourself checking out Door Creek Church, checking out this thing called Christianity this person called Jesus Christ. And you got some big questions. I mean, philosophical big questions. Like, what's the meaning in life? Where, where do I go for true fulfillment and happiness? And what is there after this life? And how did I get here? Where am I going? All those big questions. The book of Ecclesiastes is the place to go for you or a friend that you know is chasing through that. Song of Solomon. Well, if you're young and in love, great place to go. If you're older and in love, great place to go. If you're just thinking, man, there's, there's, this, there's this all kinds of things going on around me that's all about sexuality. And what does God's Word say about sexuality? Well, it's good to know, young people, that God's Word doesn't just say no. In fact, Song of Solomon is God's big, yes, this is my idea, and it's a great idea, but it's only a great idea when sex is celebrated in the safe confines of the covenant of marriage of one man and one woman. That's the book of Song of Solomon. Now, when you're reading through these five books, because it's poetry, and a lot of us, you know, we don't have the lit background. You know, some of us, 
you know, we just we never really got into haikus and, and that kind of stuff, and we're still trying to figure out what a metaphor is, and we thought it was for cows, but our English teacher said it's something else. And, and so we're really not into all this literary stuff, and we go, how do, how do we handle poetry? It's different. And Hebrew poetry is different than a lot of our poetry. Not all of our poetry rhymes, but when we think of poetry, a lot of us, we think about rhymes. Don't think about rhymes. Think about lines. Parallel lines is how Hebrew poetry works. And how it works is this. The first line comes out, and then the second line is going to sharpen the first. It's either going to say it kind of in a parallel way, in a synonymous way, um, where you're just realizing it's saying the same thing, just using different words. Or it's going to contrast. It's going to use that word, but. Uh, and, and, and you'll see, oh, this is an opposite thing. Or it'll be like a progression. It's going, okay, he said this in line one, and now he brings it to further development and conclusion. And so when you're reading poetry, look at the relationship of that second line back to the first. That's going to be really helpful as you handle this portion of God's word. Secondly, really important, when you're reading the book of Proverbs, so we talked about Proverbs 22, verse 6 says this, Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. Here's the question. Is that a promise or is it a general truth? A lot of people think that's a promise. Proverbs don't work like that. They are general truths put in this pithy, memorable memorable saying so that you can hang on to it, but they're not always true. They're generally true. So don't treat a proverb like a promise. You'll, you'll get your heart broke and you'll have wrong expectations for this portion of God's word. All right, so let's bring it home. Let's bring this section of scripture home with a few questions. The first is, am I a wise person? I don't know how you would answer it before we started talking, but now we're understanding, we're, we're talking about how God defines wisdom. Do I have the skill for living life right now in a God-honoring way? If I'm a wise person, I've honored God in my actions, in my decisions this week. There's been affection for God. There's been worship of God. There's been humility before God. And there's been obedience, walking in his ways. Am I a wise person? A second question about those feelings. Right now, your feelings. Are they enemies to faith or are they allies to faith? You don't have to beat yourself up. I'd say for a lot of my experience in hard times, I would quickly say they're enemies. And if that's where you are today, we know where we need to go, right? We go to the Psalms because they'll tie back those feelings to our faith like nothing else will. And let me ask you some questions about your relationship with God. Is God a category in my life? Do, do I have a relationship with God? And if I do, is that relationship then walking into all of life just like these books do? Does it permeate all of my, every nook and cranny? It, 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 it has to do with how I fill out my tax form, my business expense report. It has to do with what I watch, where I go. It's just all of life, what I say, what I think, what I do. Is that the kind of relationship you have with God? Or is he just in a category? God's not wanting category. 
And you know what? You ultimately don't want just a category relationship with God because it'll always leave you going, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something more. And for some of you, that's exactly what it's been. It's been a religious category in your life and there's an emptiness and there's a longing in your heart and you're going, I want something more. And the something more is what we found in a relationship with God through Christ. Finally, are you a person whose heart, attitude, disposition is delighting in God and in his word? Are you a person who delights in his word? That means you see God and you're seeing him in the word and you, what you see is delightful. And one of the things that we've been saying throughout this series is we keep getting these pictures of this promised Savior, Jesus Christ, who starts off as just this descendant of Eve. That's all we know about him. Then we find out that he's going to be uh, a descendant of Abraham and he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And then we find out it's going to be from the family of David. And as we saw last week, he is going to be this one who reigns on an eternal throne. And it, the, the, the bud just keeps opening and opening. And we get these glimpses, like back in Job 19. It's an amazing glimpse of Christ in Job 19, 25 and 26, whom he calls his living redeemer. I know my redeemer lives. It's that great um, song from Handel's Messiah. And since I'm not a soprano, I won't sing it this morning. Um, and, and what does he know about his living redeemer? That he's convinced that when he dies and his body decays in the ground, that he's going to be given a new body. And in this new body, with flesh and bones on it and with eyeballs in it, he's actually going to see this living redeemer. This is some unbelievable stuff. He's speaking way better than he knows as he trusts God and tells us who Jesus is, the living redeemer who is going to be the giver of resurrection life. And yeah, as we saw last week, he is the king. He's God's son. He's David's son, the eternal king, the ruler of all. He's the one who's going to suffer and die, but he's not going to suffer decay. He's going to rise from the dead. And when we get to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8 is all about Jesus. The reason we know it's all about Jesus is 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says Jesus is the wisdom of God. You want to know what wisdom looks like? Look to Jesus. And when Proverbs 8 personifies Jesus, uh, personifies wisdom, we understand it's talking about Jesus, the wisdom of God, who the proverb says was right there at God's side when God was laying the foundations of the earth. Wisdom was there. Well, we know from John 1, Colossians 1, that's where Jesus was. He was there in Genesis 1, the word of creation, bringing everything into existence out of nothing. And in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's the quintessential wise person who is fearing God all the time. And in Song of Solomon, we see this picture of this groom who sets his affection on his bride, who pursues her with all that he has. We understand that's a picture of Christ. And the book of the Bible ends, the books of the Bible end in Revelation 19, verse 7, with this marriage celebration. And you know who the groom is? It's Christ. And you know who the bride is? It's us, the church, his people. And so our hearts just keep going, wow, God, you're just amazing. You want a relationship with me. You love me. Your son has set his affection on me. And it's all unfolding here in the pages of the Old Testament. And for some of us, old jocks were going, and it's even in poetry. 
This is great stuff. Well, may our hearts continue to delight in the gift of God's Son, our Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are magnificent. You are so beautiful. You are so perfect. And Lord, you know I struggle to help these people see how great you are. I don't have the capacity to do that. But you have the capacity, Lord, through your word and with your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to get it, to see who you are. And, and Lord, we know that's a starting point. We need to see who you are if we're going to respond rightly. So open the eyes of our hearts. Be our vision, O oh God. And may that vision transform us to be worshipers and lovers and people who humbly obey you throughout all of life, wherever we go. In Christ's name, amen.